Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features Melissa Nunn and Harine Kutsia Koshak from Fifth House Ensemble. We hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. We are super excited this week because we have the incredible Fifth House Ensemble on today. So the Fifth House Ensemble have been praised by the New York Times for their conviction, authority, and finesse. They are a Chicago-based group, and today we are joined by the amazing Harine Koshak and Melissa Nunn. So thank you so, so much for joining us today. And I should also say hello to our co-host, the lovely and wonderful Blair Kerner. I'm sorry, Blair, I normally introduce you beforehand, but I was just so excited to introduce this group today. I was excited too, so please go ahead. (laughs) So guys, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much for having us. It's super fun. I am so pleased that we are getting to chat to you today. So I'm going to kick things off with some questions. Can you talk a little bit about how Fifth House Ensemble actually started? So why did you start? And has your focus or mission changed along the way from when you first began? Yeah, we'd love to talk about that. (laughs) It's a good story. (laughs) So Melissa and I founded the ensemble actually in 2005. Uh, Prior to that, we were in the Civic Orchestra of Chicago and had some of our most amazing and career indicating experiences playing in their community engagement program, which one auditioned for um, in small preform chamber ensembles. And they had really wonderful training in that program where we really learned how to go into a community and talk about music in a very relatable and genuine way and have the opportunity to have these incredible aha moments with audience Mm -hmm. members who would come up to us all the time afterwards and say, I came in here today expecting to not like classical music because I don't like classical music. And my mind was blown by why what I heard and and what you said about it that makes it wonderful and passionate to you. So we just realized like this is really where music making and music experience needs to be happening. We were getting as much out of it easily, if not more. (laughs) So when we first started working towards a model for Fifth House Ensemble, our our unofficial motto was most people love classical music, they just don't know it yet. 
And so actually, but the funny thing that happened <laughs> was Melissa and I didn't actually play in one of these chamber groups together, but we knew each other sort of by association in the orchestra. And we both got into the National Repertory Orchestra in Breckenridge. The initial um, contact was actually Melissa saying, hey, I know you're going to NRO. How about we carpool? I have a car. <laughs> and the rest is history. Because when, you, when you're driving with essentially a complete stranger who you think is going to do half of the driving and then find out very quickly that they've only had their license for about a, a year or so and actually don't own their own car and you know maybe they've driven for 12 hours ever in their life, then you're like, oh, okay, here, I'll drive. Why don't you just keep me awake and tell me lots of stories? So 18 hours to Colorado <laughs> there, 18 hours back to Chicago eight weeks later, we essentially, I think, almost just about had a business model down for the ensemble that we knew that we would want to start when we finished our 10 years in the Civic Orchestra. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that is definitely a way of forming A, a friendship and B, an ensemble, just 36 hours of driving. There are certain things you need to disclose before you agree to carpool. And one of them is I have had my license for less than a year and I don't know how to drive the car or figure out whether the person ahead of me is stopped at a stoplight or if it's an empty car. Like these are all things that happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are how friendships are made. And like one of the things that we talk about a lot with Fifth House and with our Freshening Festival is we're helping other artists develop similar paths for themselves is your relationships are your greatest currency. And so there's no accident that you're hearing about like the birth of a friendship at the same time as like creating the ensemble. So, you know, so much of what we were thinking about at that very beginning was sort of what Harine said, you know, we're out there to create relationships with people and to help them see themselves and each other in new ways. And I'm not sure we could have really articulated that at the very beginning. At the start, it was you know, I just been through the arts leadership program at Eastman and um, we were having all these discussions about the the culture out there and classical music is dying. Eyeing, eyeing. <laughs> you know, all of those conversations were very present in front of mind. And um, I just remember experiences in civic where I was really so excited to be playing wonderful orchestral music in a beautiful hall. But I'd also noticed that people were out there in the audience taking the most expensive nap of their lives sometimes. And, you know, what was really fun for us was to have the chance to actually program concerts that were chamber music shows in non-traditional spaces, whether it was parks or restaurants or whatever it is, and just see that the decisions we were making really impacted how people experienced the day. That's such a basic thing. But if we think about the way that we consider the design of classical music performances, we tend to start with artists or repertoire or whatever it is, and we don't think as much about the experience around it. So that was one of the first kind of lessons we learned. And I think to your question earlier about how did things progress, you know, we knew when we started that we wanted to push beyond the limits of what classical music could do. And most people think you meet a classical musician, that person can perform for you, or they can teach you to play an instrument, right? Um, we wanted to really think about how musicians might be helpful in the world beyond that. And so... For us, it kind of began with performing in unexpected places, with collaborations with artists who were not musicians at all, um, and also with arts integrated programs in schools where we were teaching, you know, music and core curricular subjects at the same time. Before we knew what arts integration was, by the way, we sort of fell backwards into it just because there was a project that sounded interesting. Um, but as we've sort of evolved the practice, you know, we're just sort of following our own curiosity down one rabbit hole after another. Um, we've started to evolve to a point where it's not 
as much about making for people as it is making with people. So that's led us down the path of civic practice. Um, we've started doing a lot of work with people and organizations who don't identify themselves as artists. But I think where we're starting to really spend a lot of our time now is on the idea that we are all artists. When we go out to do work and deem it outreach, like that's a four letter word. There's a reason why if you take out the middle, it spells ouch. Like it's it's not a good thing because what you're doing is you're articulating to people, you're not an artist and I am, yep. but we all are. We were all born that way. And so giving people back that experience, mm-hmm. you know, so much of what we do now is examining the ways in which making art every day transforms your life. So moving on from that, uh, rather than being a set chamber group, so instead of a string quartet or wing quintet, you are a collective of 11 instrumentalists. Could you talk about how you selected the particular players that you work with and how the instruments available to you plays into any programming that you do? Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, we have 10 performing musicians and a composer typically in the group. Um, You know, I think that one of the things that we've really prided ourselves on is functioning as an ensemble, even though our forces are large. And so there's a lot around that that has to do with the investment people make in the group, the time that they spend together. And, you know, a lot of the work that we do is very deeply rooted, what not just the rehearsal and performance aspect, but also building of projects, design of projects, you know, relationship building with social service organizations, that really requires an investment in each other, in the relationships that happen outside and all of those things. So one of the things that's really interesting to think about is that being a wonderful musician is sort of the price of admission into an audition or interview process for the group. Um, it's so much more than that. You know, the skill set that you need to be an excellent speaker, a relationship builder, a teaching artist, you know, a person who can help in a partner organization or a younger artist with design of a programming. I mean, these are all sort of skill sets. Hmm. So you've been alluding to quite a bit of different things that you do, educational and initiatives, performing, uh, collaborative projects, and you also have residencies and even do case studies. Um, so how did all these aspects get developed and how do you prioritize them? That's a great question. Performance and, you know, the work that we do on the stage has always been one of the primary things. But it's interesting because as things have evolved, those things that seem very distinct, so performance, education, emerging artist training, civic practice, those things that seem very distinct from one another have merged together in a through line over the course of the last 15 years to the point where you know, one of our goals is that our educational and artistic programs become somewhat indistinguishable, that they all incorporate that element of play that we think is so important, that it all incorporates an element of interactivity and a participatory nature in terms of how they're constructed to where it's less of a, you know, young people need to learn how to play music because adults don't need it anymore. You know what I mean? There's there's less of that. Um, and I would also say that, you know, increasingly the work we do that may seem purely artistic in its nature. So for instance, we have a couple of video game properties that we work with and both of those are really selected because of how they teach you to be a better person in a variety of ways. So for me, there's, there's so much synergy between these that, Mm. you know, we tend to create projects that have multiple facets. I think to tag on what Melissa said, you know, we set it up that way from day one as well, that I think at the time we didn't, 
have the experience yet to know how we would come to fuse all these things. But even from day one, it was impo extremely important to us that we value education as much as our artistic programming, as much as anything we would ever tour with on the road. And we embedded ourselves in our Chicago community. And our first work was actually in Chicago public schools because Chicago is known to be an arts desert. They lost their discretionary funding for arts education mm. in the 70s, never got it back. And so we oh, first gosh. were doing work in Chicago public schools to answer that call and that incredibly urgent need for children to have arts education put back into their hands and to have have that access and have lots of interesting ways to access it that didn't necessarily require an instrument. You know, there were other wonderful organizations in the city doing great work with beginner group string instruction or beginner group band where they were helping those schools receive funding to do instrumental music. That was certainly one way to approach that in a very valid and legitimate way. And I was even involved heavily in my earlier part of my career with those kinds of organizations as well. But we found that we ne needed to start with arts integration, a way where we can embed ourselves into a classroom for an extended period of time, build a relationship with our students and teachers, mm. co-create curriculum with those teachers, and then create musical projects that have that are embedded in their core curricular standards and subject matter that would actually facilitate the learning of that material more deeply in both directions. And so that was important to us before we knew that it was a thing called arts integration. <laughs> um, a couple of years into it, it turned out it that was it had be become termed, but we were we were sort of doing it on our own and very instinctively because we just saw this tremendous need. And, and I think a lot of times ensembles start and they say, oh yeah, also we, we'd like to do some good in our community. And for us, we, we didn't see those things as being separate. We saw those things as being absolutely essential and integral with one another. So you've collaborated a lot and you have lots of partnerships um, from Cleveland Orchestra and San Fran Opera to um, public school districts to higher education and video games and composers. How do you develop that relationship? You mentioned relationship building is really important. So are you reaching out to these organizations? Are they inviting you? Um, you know, and how do you decide which ones to pursue? Yeah, it happens a lot of different ways. And, you know, we're open to all of the many beautiful ways that relationships can begin. So we're at a place right now where we have enough of a body of work that there are definitely times when people reach out to us and ask us for assistance you know, or where they reach out to us because they're interested in developing an artistic project together. Those are always beautiful times. You know, we talk a lot about um, some of the spectrums that you can articulate around how art is made that we have um, borrowed gratefully from one of our mentors, Michael Rode. And he talks about this social practice, civic practice, studio practice, um, continuum where basically studio practice is we initiate a project. So it might be something like um, a concert program that we're creating. We design the whole thing. We bring it to an audience. Social practice is, you know, you might have a project that you are creating that has a social impact goal within it, but it's yours. It's your design. And so then you initiate that with partners. And so you might say, you know, a project we're doing right now is Rivers Empyrean. We had this idea to do something that would engage ecology in some way, but we wanted some help designing what that should be, what it should look like, and what the priorities of the project would be. So we reached out to conservation groups and to the American Indian Center in Chicago and um, built the project with them over two years. Again, that's how the invitation is made determines how the project is in its mm -hmm. function and in its goals. And then civic practice is more of a process where you might have an invitation from a partner outside of your field uh, that says, 
you know, we're needing some help with some of the women that we work with, um, having them have experiences to process trauma outside of traditional therapy. What can you do as artists? And so when you're working in civic practice, it's really around how do you leverage your artistic assets in a way that looks very different perhaps than a concert or an educational program and really requires a lot of imagination. But Blair, I really love your question because the way that I think about this kind of work, it really is defined by the invitation. It is defined by that very first step. And the biggest thing that we as artists can do in that conversation, whether it's initiated by us or by the partner, is first of all, to help transcend the biases that exist on both sides. So first of all, we might Mm -hmm. think to ourselves, this is this particular kind of partner. So here's what they need. Like that's an assumption. We got to let that go. And the other thing is that, of course, they're going to look at us as musicians if we don't know each other yet and say, well, we're having trouble with getting people to our events. Can you perform or et cetera? And they're really going to think about it from the perspective of performance or education. So it's really our job to ask questions that dig deeper than that. What's ahead of you in the coming year? Um, What are some things that you're challenged by? Whether you think I can address them or not, you know, I'm just curious to learn a little bit more. Um, So that's one thing that I would say. And then, you know, the idea also of showing up as a guest at the beginning, you know, if you're going to build a relationship with someone showing up as just a participant, as an interested party, as someone who's going to, you know, support and, you know, be a part of the community before you start asking for things that creates a relationship and not a transactional opportunity. So I think those are all things that are really important as you, as you come into the room and also, Last thing and really most basic thing, a lot of artists will come to partners with a menu of things they can do. Don't do that. (laughs) You know, it's always Mm. helpful to have those ideas, those past case studies, those projects that you could potentially think um, to suggest. But if you define it at the beginning, it's more like outreach. If you imagine it together, it's more of a co-created relationship. Here's our store and purchase what you want type of thing. It's so hard not to do that because we as classical musicians are trained to be prepared. Like you would never dream of walking into any other (laughs) setting, right? Like not fully prepared. And so what does preparation mean in this situation, right? If you're, if we're over-prepared in that way, then we really limit what could happen. And exactly what Melissa says, it becomes confined to, um, to that situation, which isn't, which is far from ideal and not nearly as collaborative. One of your many projects does involve working with interactive video game performances, such as Undertale or Journey. How does this work and why did you choose these specific ventures several years ago our artistic director came over and said i need you to play this game and i think my response was please go away i'm busy i haven't played games since duck hunt (laughs) Um, (laughs) so basically he just said listen no i need you to sit on the couch i'm not kidding he basically like seat belts me to the couch and has me play journey for the first time without exaggeration i cried like ugly cried three times in the course of playing that game. It got super awkward because our violist showed up in the middle of that. And I'm just sitting on the couch, like bawling in tears. He's like, is everybody okay? What was really beautiful about that was it was such a great testament to the idea that a video game is art, first of all, and that mm-hmm. the music, the um, the story, the visuals of the game everything about it worked together to create something that was so incredibly moving. It was a transformative experience. It teaches you about selflessness and about generosity and about um, the, the journey through life to use the title of the game in a way. 
And so we really wanted to take this experience that you would typically have on your couch and bring it into the concert hall. So in that particular case, it was about doing a full playthrough of the game and creating the first fully interactive performance version of it where, you know, the game itself really only takes about hundred minutes or 110 to play. So it fits really well with an evening length performance. So essentially what ends up happening is that we have up to six players who take turns playing the game one at a time in the different scenes or stages of the game. And um, their actions determine what we do. The score is, is captured in a way that it is fully responsive to the actions of the player. And we have all these tiny trigger points all over the place that, you know, based on when the player gets close to another player or jumps on the bridge or passes on to the next thing, it shifts the music. And, you know, one of the things that cracks me up about this is at the premiere, we got this question at Steppenwolf Theater. Um, from an audience member in the talkback who was like, I thought that was going to be interactive, but you just played the whole thing straight through. And I was like, great, we did our jobs and you never noticed <laughs> all the stuff we were doing. You never saw it. And it's, it's beautiful because the game is actually, the music is so incredibly well-crafted by Austin Wintry that the jump points are pretty hard to see in the game. Like you can't tell when you're playing the game. Mm -hmm. So our job as musicians was to simulate that, to make sure that we never show when we're making a transition. So that's Journey. And then Undertale is a different experience, um, but with kind of a similar through line in terms of what it teaches you. It teaches you yes. that your choices matter and that there's more to what you see from people when you meet them for the first time. Um, and, you know, when you play the game the first time, you might not be fully aware of that. And the game's engine itself teaches you the shame of having made wrong choices. It remembers the part of the most amazing thing about Undertale is that, you know, Toby created the game on his own as a solo developer and wrote the music, which is pretty unheard of. Um, he did so at a very young age and at very little cost to himself, like using, you know, an RPG maker that you could download on the internet. You know, it's, it's incredible, but the talent, the craft, I mean, our artistic director, who is a a very accomplished composer himself has said it rivals the best constructed operas that are on the stage today in terms yeah. of how it deals with themes and transformation of musical material. It's incredibly beautifully done. And the music is just fun as hell, um, first of all. So, you know, in that case, it's a game that takes multiple hours to play through. So our artistic director, Dan, actually worked with um, Toby and Materia Collective to develop a branching narrative, a series of sort of choose your own adventure choices that in a live performance lead you through um, the choices that you could make in the game. And so we have basically about twice as much music available as we would play on any given night because it depends on the choices that the audience makes and they vote via text message to drive the action. Oh, so you vote whether you do pacifist or um, neutral or, oh, that's Yeah, so it's cool. every choice point. Logistical question off of that. If you have that much music to prep, um, how many times do you play this? And do you feel like if you have to do all this rehearsing or just like practicing of these parts and that you never end up playing that like that's a waste? Well, the show will never be the same twice. When we premiered it in January, we had so many repeat ticket buyers who wanted to see what the other ending was for the next night. It is, it's a ton of music. We did have to learn it all. We spent quite a lot of time on it. The scariest thing is not the actual, mu the music is hard. It's very challenging, but the scariest thing isn't that it's, that you rarely are in a position to anticipate what is going to be next. I mean, you know what the possibilities are, but making those transitions 
um, in your brain really quickly, like pick you like feeling those tempos out of thin air, you know, like because mm-hmm. you don't know until the very end of that next one. You're, you're not even sitting in that piece, like mapping out the transition for, oh, well, this time it's going to be this because you don't know until they vote. The um, four score app that we have to use in, in our iPads with a button feature that I had never seen until this particular program is really what saved our butts because <laughs> I have no idea what we could have done with paper parts. There is no, I mean, it would have been like a maze. Every person just would be sitting there shuffling their pages around. You just would have been running It would be a room. disaster. Oh, I was so relieved to find that button feature and figure out how it worked because then it navigates you through this little e-maze of parts. The first night was terrifying. The second night was slightly less terrifying and we were able to make it work. But the, the audience reaction was just incredible. I mean, we sold out the first show, which was in a 750 seat, 750 seat hall in about two and a half hours. What was so amazing was just to see, you know, 13 year olds and 20 year olds and Mm -hmm. parents all in the same space, screaming their heads off at their favorite characters, like leaning up at the front of their chairs, texting, you know, fight or mercy at every intersection. It was just so cool to watch people um, that into it. And that's honestly been the best thing about both of these projects is just the community that gets built around them. We had a a 13 year old in the discord server who actually collated all the feedback from audience members after the first show so that we could make edits. What? I didn't even know that. Oh my goodness. Yes, he volunteered. We didn't, I mean, we're not violating child labor laws here. He was just like, I'm seeing, (laughs) I'm seeing all of these things. And would it help if I just put this together? And we're like, we can't ask you, but if you did, we'd be so grateful. Oh my gosh. I, oh, this is brilliant. A, I want to come see you live in the after times Mm -hmm. when we eventually get to that, because I will be the person who will be on the edge of my seat for this. But very briefly, are there any additional rights that you need to obtain for performances like this? Obviously, you've been working with the creators, which is useful, but copyright law is a pain in the neck anyway. So what else do you have to do to uh, do this kind of collaborative project? I mean, the answer is yes, a million times, especially when you're making things that break new ground, then of course you're dealing with very complicated rights because it may fit one model and maybe not another, or it may loosely fit some models that exist. And one of the biggest things that I've learned through doing this is that If everyone involved wants to make it happen, there's going to be a way to make it happen. You just have to find a structure that works for everybody and it's going to look different per project, right? I think one of the things we've gotten really lucky with is to be able to be directly involved with the creators of these games. If that were not the case, first of all, what we're describing is not the usual, hey, we're just going to play music from Undertale and maybe there will be some visuals behind it. It's actually creating something that's really bespoke and captures the spirit of what's special about the game and its experience in a live form. So to do that, you need to really be in touch with the creators to understand and get inside what that is beyond even what you can experience as a player and a fan of the game, like really understanding what they cared about when they made it. You know what I mean? And making sure that that's captured in what we do. So that's the first thing is just really being in touch and making sure that that line of communication is open. It's not just an approval. It's actually like a collaborative experience back and forth. I'm also very lucky that we've worked with a number of companies along the way and organizations that have helped us along this journey. So of course, um, working with that game company and Sony Santa Monica um, around Journey Live 
also, and with Austin himself, of course. Um, and then also working with Toby Fox via Materia Collective, they really understand and advocate for the many different types of rights that exist around a project like this. They actually nationally speak on this and manage multiple properties. So it's it's really wonderful to work with them. We've learned a lot. Um, I will say that, you know, when you're doing a project like this, you're talking about the rights to the music, you're talking about the rights to the story and the visual assets from the property, and you're talking about the rights to the brand and how it can be used in marketing and all of those things. Um, and also you're probably talking about design and rights when it comes to merchandise. So there are many different layers that are involved in it and sometimes different entities that are involved based on the existing vendor relationships or licensing relationships that exist around a property. Oof, I can't imagine. I'm just like, check, check, check. Oy. All um, logistical nightmare. All the things, all the things. Um, moving on to another project that I need to do. So in, in addition to going into schools, you also create your own educational opportunity over the summer for preformed ensembles or individuals to come and attend. So could you talk a little bit about the structure of that, what classes you teach and why you chose to teach particularly those uh, classes? Yeah, we love talking about Fresh Ink. <laughs> and Fresh Ink is actually one of our favorite parts of the entire year because it's just been so cool to get to know new emerging artists and com and composers, um, performers and composers. Everyone's an artist. What we kind of did when we launched the festival uh, in 2012 was, so we were about seven years old at the time, and we had learned quite a bit at that point about what it takes to start your own ensemble and make it profitable. All of the things that we didn't learn in school, we felt there was there was still a huge gap, even though there were amazing entrepreneurship programs starting to pop up at that point. I know when I was in school, there just wasn't anything like that yet. So we, even with those programs, there were still very specific holes that we wanted to be able to plug in the curriculum that we knew people were not getting from their own university environments, most likely, even if they were in some of these select programs, such as the Eastman program. It was just a very, um, concerted and very practical need that we wanted to be able to offer and fill. So basically anything that we learned, we decided to turn around, turn it into a class and teach it at Fresh Inc. So the curriculum has evolved because we're constantly learning. <laughs> and what mm -hmm. we at this point do is we have 24 composers attend the festival every year. They each write a seven to eight minute piece that is essentially a commission. And we have anywhere from 25 to 35 or so performers who attend, some of them in preformed ensembles. And we then create ensembles within that number of attendees to to premiere those works. And so and then in addition to that, we have this huge curriculum that we offer every year that is constantly changing. We have a 2.0 track now that we offer for performers or composers to come back and do a repeat year with us where they can focus on their own project. And we actually give them a lot of one on one mm. time to do that and to get some passes at creating some component towards that project. So they walk away with either possibly having incorporated as a nonprofit by the end or created, launched themselves as an official business model or launched a, mm. a large piece of curriculum that they would like to roll out for whatever program they are um, working on on their own moving forward. When it's in person, it's 
incredibly ex exciting jam-packed two weeks with uh, 10 to 12 performances in 14 days <laughs> um the premieres happening at the end maybe melissa you'd like to take over with the uh the digital version of fresh ink which we had to make a very very quick pivot to in march when we suddenly realized that an in-person festival was probably not a great option for this year yeah for sure you know that was definitely a barf inducing moment when everything just shut down and one of the biggest projects that we had ahead of us was fresh ink you know we really felt a huge responsibility to make sure that we were creating an experience that was made for artists who were making art in this moment. Many of the decisions we made, first of all, were number one, get information into the hands of the artists who are working with us this summer immediately on how they can record themselves, collaborate remotely, access emergency funds, manage their finances during a crisis. So we started doing workshops immediately before the June festival even started. And we basically announced a pivot to digital. So we're going to challenge you to create pieces that take advantage of digital platforms that incorporate latency into their construction. And we're going to be providing tools and resources and coaches and help to you in the process of making those explorations. And one of the things that was really cool about this is that we actually started inviting new tech coaches, music technology specialists, and also composers to coach who were themselves exploring new and strange things. It ended up that we gave 40 professional development workshops in the weeks leading up to and during the festival. Wow. I would say about 35% of it was new or reshaped content based on what we were facing at that moment. And we were left with a couple of things. The first thing was we had 24 world premieres, 10 live stream performances, two educational programs during those two weeks. We also developed really a curriculum around two different tracks of creating work, whether it was, you know, pre-recording in parts with a click track or live performances that take advantage of the weird idiosyncrasies of performing online. So developing and rehearsing and recording and performing those on live stream, we now have that process. So we're partnering now with universities and conservatories as they themselves are making similar pivots, working with composition and chamber music programs and providing those tools and curricula to teacher and teachers and faculty. So that's been an amazing thing to watch happen is that everything that we challenged ourselves to learn is now becoming useful to others. And that's been a really fun part of the process. I'm just listening to that. I'm exhausted. You know what? It was exhausting. And <laughs> <laughs> Typically we try and be as prepared as we can. If there's a through line to all of this, it's that idea of preparation versus flexibility, you know? And one of the things that happened on our very first live stream night, this is after we had spent so much time thinking about, okay, what does the audio need to be? We're sound checked. We've got all these things. Um, all, all of the things, all of, we've got like, we've got three different people running the stream, multiple people watching the feeds, everything. Okay. So Comcast decides to do scheduled maintenance and shut down the internet in the entire city where the live stream was taking place. Of course. We were dead 10 minutes in oh, and God. all of the, all of the artists are in a zoom stage and we're still, those of us who are not the stream operator are still able to communicate with them. We just know that it's gone dark. And I'm on a phone call with her. She's like, I don't know what's happening. It, everything just got shut down. But what was really interesting, I thought that this would be a total pants down moment and we would be seen for the frauds that we are. But actually what ended up happening was that 
over and over, the participants who were in the room with us said that was the most instructive experience of the entire festival, to just watch the way that the communication happened, the way that you had redundancies and backups set up for this moment, the way you prepared for what a return would look like, how you were testing, and how you communicated was one of the most instructive moments. And it felt like the most professional experience because they themselves were becoming a part of the solution. So that was actually a really cool thing for us to watch. It's one thing to see the polished finished version. It's another thing to see all the work that goes into it, especially the troubleshooting. That says a lot. So moving on to our last section uh, of the interview, what I like to call life hacks, but really they are life skills for being an artist and a musician. How do you divide up your administrative and logistical skills? Yeah, I mean, that's such an important and huge question. And I should say everybody in the group has a different balance of this. You know, um, I think that I've been one of the people who historically has had the heaviest balance on both sides, probably. And the things that I learned in the heat of that were really around, you have to keep your appointments to yourself. You know, um, it's so easy to prioritize what you need to do for other people in terms of, oh, I have to meet this person here. Or I have this thing due or whatever it is. And because practicing is actually something that you only do with yourself, you could say, oh, I can shove that off until later. But here's the thing. One of the things that we say at the very beginning of the Fresh Ink experience is it doesn't matter. None of this matters if you don't have the goods. You know, you got to have the goods, period. And so there's nothing that you can put around it. There's no fancy marketing. There's no, you know, creative anything that's going to substitute for the idea that you've actually got to go up there and do a good job. And there's a certain physical nature to doing a good job, which results from consistent everyday time with the instrument. So, you know, you got to show up for that. And I think that that's one of the things that I've had to work really hard to balance for a very long time as like, I was really sort of full-time with all of that for, for quite a long time. And I think, you know, there was always another grant to write. There was always another email, but at the end of the day, I couldn't substitute. I couldn't cram the idea of being able to be in shape enough to play a great show. So I'm going to wrap up with a final question, which is, and we always try to end with like a thought provoking or fun question. So this question is, so you've done a lot of programming and you've done a lot of really innovative things. What is your favorite program or moment? We're actually speechless for the first time. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's too many. It's too many. It's a lot of pressure. It's um, <laughs> true. Okay. I have one. We, uh, we did a project with a Tuvan throat singing group, Alash. We had the experience to travel to Tuva and actually record a music video on the lake Lake Chagatai. One of the things that's cool about that project is we were looking at in the way that Tuvan music is traditionally created. The instruments are meant to evoke and inhabit the spirit of the animals of which they are made. The musical arrangements that they created, including Chagatai, which is the song we were playing, is about this particular lake and the sounds that you hear and the way that the weather changes on the shore. And when we show up there, we're in this rickety van, which is like you're driving across a field, okay, for like hours. And you show up, it's rainy and kind of gross outside. And we've got this video crew there with like drones flying and all of this. And they're like, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this because I don't know if it's going to happen. And the song itself has lyrics about like the, the weather changing, like in an instant, we get out of the van, the clouds part, we put our instruments together, we play, 
we finish, the drone flies above us. A herd of wild horses runs behind the camera. And that's all the time we have. It rains again. And we get it. It's in one take. So to me, what's interesting is that that was special enough. But what was really cool was the moment when we played it in the hall at Old Town School of Folk Music, we asked people to imagine themselves by the shore of Lake Chagatai and do a deep listening piece where they themselves created the sounds that they heard in their mind's ear and made them real. They're seeing footage from that experience on the screen. We dim the lights. They've got like little twinkly lights and other things that they can use. People had tears streaming down their faces, just the opportunity to make music together in that way. And to me, even better than that crazy experience that was like sort of cosmic by the shore was that moment and what people told us it meant to them that it was their favorite musical experience so that's what I've got wow that's beautiful so thank you for sharing that I would love to go and watch that it sounds amazing I I don't think we can top that I think we're I know. <laughs> I think in a hurry now you have to go and good luck <laughs> I think we have a rule in this group that like, like if we're working on a piece, it doesn't have to be your favorite piece, but we've made the decision to play it. We make a commitment to everything we play, right? So for me though, I, I do feel like the program I'm working on right now is my favorite, but like whatever that happens to be, because it, it just, that's the commitment we make to the, to the program. We're a little in between things right now, as you might imagine. So actually to answer that question, I think the journey really is a favorite for me in the sense of I think I think something that it blew wide open for me was that in the audience for it, which we premiered at Magfest for a ballroom of 2,500 people in cosplay sitting on the floor. Oh, that's so cool. Was really astonishing to me because what I realized as I was sitting there, not being a gamer myself, but having played the game and appreciating it for what it is and also getting like the super juicy cello part because it's a cello concerto essentially after all. (laughs) Sitting there in this like red gown with gold like edging that looks like the character's outfit which is really fun and cool i just suddenly realized every note of that score was embedded in every person's dna that many people just they knew exactly what was coming next given what might happen on the screen and there was this one moment where you think of that game as being very meditative and contemplative but there is this moment where there's this up-tempo music that starts for the first time in in the game and everyone just went insane for it And I never expected that because I didn't associate the scene for what it was to be doing, to have that effect on people. But then I realized they were cheering for the music. They were cheering for the sheer exuberance and joy of hearing that theme. If you want to cue it up, you can. But but I just... It was so cool to to hear the room collectively cheer like a football game or something like somebody had scored a goal. It was just tremendous to experience that and then feel so connected to that audience. You know, actually just a couple of weeks ago, we were presenting on this and Melissa and I did a run through on that presentation that we've done a million times. But as as she rolled that particular footage of that particular movement in in the slides, I had to take a moment. I actually just lost it. Cause it was like, it felt so far away in a way, but it, it just meant, it means so much to be able to have, have that. So we're all looking forward to having that experience again one day. Oh, I can't Both wait. sound yeah. amazing. For sure. That was, that was such an emotional experience. And I, I remember that moment cause all 2,500 people were sitting on the floor. They were, they wouldn't allow chairs in there and yes. were dead silent for the entire thing up to that point, like prayerfully so. And then Harim starts that theme and just the roof exploded. It was so unexpected. 
and just unbelievable. And as a classical musician, let's face it, like it's pretty unusual to have 2,500 people in cosplay like freak out for you. Even without the cosplay, like. Even just sitting down on the floor in some of those costumes, I just, I can't even imagine. That is dedication to the fandom. That's, oh, that's incredible. We met some of the coolest people and like, you know, even our rehearsal process, we put out a call to our Kickstarter backers and said, hey, does anyone want to come play the game with us? We're going to be in Winnetka, Illinois at this time. And this dude shows up. And oh my gosh, Viking yes. Jesus. His Viking name is Viking Jesus. Jesus. He's, he's like <laughs> nine feet tall, has this vest and this beard. And, and he's like, I'm here to play. And I'm like, oh God, are you lost? Is everything okay? Like, so he's this tough guy. He shows up, sits in the chair, give him the controller. Harine starts the opening theme. It's a cello solo. And this guy just cries immediately. Oh my gosh. It's beautiful. I love that. And this is... This is why we do what we do. This is, this is the, ah, that, I'm not even making coherent sentences. That's fine. (laughs) I feel you. We are going to wrap up all of these things now. Uh, Once again, we have had the lovely and wonderful Harine and Melissa from Fifth House Ensemble joining us today. Uh, We will put the links to all your social medias and your website down in the show notes. And just a huge thank you for having such a wonderful, exciting, sometimes silly, sometimes serious conversation with us. This has been such a delight. And please let me know when you are on the West Coast in the after times post COVID, because I want to come and watch Undertale. Thank you so much. This has been such an honor. You're both so delightful. And we really appreciated having having the chance to just hang out on a Friday afternoon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore, and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Toby Fox, arranged by Eric Roth with Chris Opperman, and performed by Fifth House Ensemble and Alash. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.